Good morning. This morning, the scripture is from Mark, chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. When Jesus returned to Capernaum several days later, the news spread quickly that he was back home. Soon the house where he was staying was so packed with visitors that there was no more room, even outside the door. While he was preaching God's word to them, four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. They couldn't bring him to Jesus because of the crowd, so they dug a hole through the roof above his head. Then they lowered the man on his mat right down in front of Jesus. Seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralyzed man, My child, your sins are forgiven. But some of the teachers of religious law who were sitting there thought to themselves, What is he saying? This is blasphemy. Only God can forgive sins. Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So he asked them, Why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or, Stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. So I will prove to you that the Son of Man has the authority on earth to forgive sins. Then Jesus turned to the paralyzed man and said, Stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. And the man jumped up, grabbed his mat, and walked out through the stunned onlookers. They were all amazed and praised God, exclaiming, We've never seen anything like this before. The word of the Lord. Well, we've been engaged for just, I guess this is the fifth week already. It's amazing how quickly time flies by, but we're engaged in a series of messages that we've entitled Walking with Jesus, and we're walking with Jesus through the gospel of Mark. And uh, we've come to the end of chapter one and are entering into the beginning of chapter 2 today. If you go back and just look at how chapter 1 ended, we find there a scene where Jesus heals a man of leprosy. And for some reason, he tells this man to don't go, like, don't go and tell anyone. Don't, don't say anything. But can you imagine being asked after you've been healed of leprosy and something that you've struggled with and you've had all these, and suddenly you're clean and people aren't avoiding you anymore and your whole life is turned upside down. And Jesus says, but don't tell anyone. He didn't listen to Jesus. And so he goes out and he tells everyone. And so, of course, as he's sharing this with everyone, it says that Jesus continues to go around and, and they're bringing to Jesus those who are sick and demon-possessed and he continues to heal. The disciples themselves, they're super excited to have this front row seat to all of this healing activity and they want him to continue, but Jesus, in fact, suggests after praying and asking his father, decides that it would be better to move on and go to some of the nearby villages to preach because he says, this is why I have come. That was what he was called to do. He was called to come and preach the good news because he was the good news. And so even as he continues to preach and he continues to drive out demons and heal the sick. But now when we come into chapter 2, Mark records this fantastic story that Heidi read for us. 
It's a story of faith and of healing and forgiveness. And this morning, since we're looking at a passage that records yet another miracle, I've asked Bob Teske to come this morning and just share with us a little bit about his journey over these last six or seven months. You may know Bob as our brunch man. And uh, Bob does so much at TCC, and he's a blessing to us. And uh, in February, Bob's health was incredibly low. And, uh, and Bob wants to this morning just give praise and thanks to God for the work that he's done in his life. So, Bob, thank you. Thank you, Norb. Good morning, everyone. Uh, some of you probably know my story, but for those who don't, uh, I will recap. I've been uh, an insulin-dependent diabetic for 59 years. Uh, one of the uh, things that uh, comes from long-term diabetes is uh, kidney failure. For the past several years, my kidneys have been my kidney function has been on a knife edge. Finally, in early February, my kidneys failed completely and without really any notice. Uh, As I slouched in my chair and slept for 20 hours a day and tried to assure Val that I was fine, (laughs) she finally took command and called the ambulance. As the doctors tried to diagnose the problem, I got just sicker. During this time and for the next week, my family was at my side uh, and weren't sure whether I was going to live. And I found myself wondering whether this was what it was like to die. As I say, during this time, Val and my family uh, were with me uh, all the time uh, and I, I uh, uh, was uh, uh, exceedingly sick. It was finally determined that it was my kidneys and a whole lot of other things uh, that were the problem, and I was told that I would have to go on dialysis. Dialysis is a lifesaver. Without it, the kidneys, uh, uh, without kidney fun, with kidney failure. Uh, uh, the uh, without it, people with kidney failure accumulate fluid because the kidneys aren't getting rid of the water and other toxins. The pressure of the fluid causes the heart and lungs to fail. People quickly die. In my case, I'd accumulated over 30 pounds of fluid. That first week, one of my kids... Val was at me, my side every day. After a couple of weeks, the regular dialysis started to have an impact, and I started to feel better and was able to go home. But dialysis is a constant companion. I was spending five hours, three times a week, hooked to a machine. After a couple of months, I asked my doctor whether there was any chance that the kidneys would recover. His response although a little gentler than this, was, this is a life sentence. Get used to it. Um, I settled into a routine of going to dialysis every other day. Then, in June, I started to produce urine. I was able to go to dialysis only twice a week, and then once. 
Then, uh, finally, on June 25th, my birthday, and what a gift, uh, I was kicked out. Your kidneys are working well enough that you don't need dialysis. And to this day, I'm feeling fine and doing great, honestly. <laughs> Last week, when I was in for a checkup, the nurse practitioner said that in all her time dealing with kidney disease, she could count on one hand the number of recoveries like mine. I know that this was a miracle. Uh, I know that many of you prayed for my recovery, and I thank you for that from the bottom of my heart. I am a great believer in the power of prayer, but I'm also a believer in the sovereignty of God, so I know that often what we don't get what we pray for. I, in my case, I've been immensely blessed to experience this miracle in my life. I don't know how long it will last, uh, but I am committed to serve my God and the world as fully and compassionately as I can with the time I'm given. Thank you very much. Have you ever seen anything like this? That's why this man that was healed in the story that we're going to look at caused a great spontaneous praise to God. And while we give thanks for Bob and all that he does and how he serves and the example that he is, we give thanks to God. Because ultimately, he is the author of the healing. Ultimately, he is the one to whom we prayed. We believe in the power of prayer because we believe in the power of the one that we pray to. That's why we pray. And so this morning, this is a great passage for us to just think about a little bit this morning. And I invite you to come with me on a journey. As we journey back to Capernaum and try to place ourselves there in that scene, in that overcrowded house where the people who had heard about Jesus had gathered to hear Jesus. Because the news about Jesus was spreading fast. He had just healed the man of leprosy. He told him to don't tell. As I said already, he went and told everyone. And as a result, the scripture says that Jesus could no longer enter a town openly. He, he was being recognized everywhere. Because word about the miracles that were being performed had gone before him. And so he returns to Capernaum. There's this buzz about Jesus, and everyone's talking with him. And when they heard that he was staying in a house, they all flocked to the house. And as soon that, and very soon, that house was so packed that they overflowed the house, spilled out through the open doors and out onto the streets. Inside the house, the passage says that Jesus was preaching God's word to them. As that was his mission. And so at this point, Mark tells us that four men arrived at the house. They were carrying a paralyzed man on a mat. Now, if you think about it, can you imagine what it must have been like to be a paralytic in the first century? The mat on which they carried him was maybe the, it was probably everything to him. 
He slept on it. They obviously carried him around on it. He was totally dependent on everyone else to feed him, to carry him, to bathe him, to clothe him. Nothing at that time could have been done medically. There was no way for him to contribute to society. All he could do was probably beg by the side of the road. He has absolutely nothing except for some amazing friends. And these friends, they've also heard about Jesus, and they start to think, you know, if only we can get our friend to Jesus, he would be able to heal him. And so they pick up their friend on the mat, and they run over to the house where everyone has already gathered, and they quickly realize that there's no way that they're going to be able to get through the crowd. But instead of becoming discouraged and saying, saying, well, I guess we'll have to try again tomorrow, one of them must have noticed a stairway up the side of the house, as was common in Palestinian homes. And so he motions to the others, and he says, come on, let's, let's go around the side of the house, and we'll, we'll go up the stairs and onto the roof. And when they get up on the roof, now for us just to think rooftop patio, The homes largely had flat roofs. They were, would have been made of cross beams, and then they would have been covered with branches and reeds and grasses, and then covered with mud and clay and packed down hard. And they would have built this up, and some, some conversation would have been maybe two feet thick. This was the roof of the house. But you don't need a jackhammer to dig through mud and clay. And that's exactly what the paralytic's friends start to do. These friends are fantastic, aren't they? They have this deep sense of desperation for their friend. And they know that no one or nothing is going to stop them from getting their paralyzed friend to Jesus. Because they are absolutely convinced that Jesus will be able to do something for him. So up on the roof... They're digging and they're moving reeds and branches and they're kicking aside dirt. Meanwhile, down inside the house, I'm thinking that the gathered crowd, maybe they first hear, you know, there's some rumbling up on the roof. They're wondering what's going on. And, but they're still trying to listen to Jesus' teaching. But they, they keep looking up because, man, something's going up on the roof. And soon it becomes a distraction. And then suddenly a little bit of dirt starts to fall from the ceiling. Some of them are brushing it off their robes. And then suddenly this hand pokes through a little hole. And suddenly they see a little bit of light as well. Now I'm sure you can imagine that by this time now everyone has stopped listening to Jesus. As good of a preacher as he was. And they're all interrupted by this brazen intrusion. Once the hole is big enough, with a rope tied to each corner of the mat, they start to lower the paralyzed man down through the roof, the hole in the roof that they had made, and they drop him down right in front of Jesus. The crowd, stunned into silence, amazed and maybe even slightly annoyed at this rude interruption because they were quite enjoying hearing Jesus preaching. That's why they were there. But this is what they've been hearing about. They've been hearing about the miracles, the healings. 
So Jesus looks up at the man, then up at the roof, sees the, the face of his friends, and he realizes that this act of, dem- of dem- desperation was in fact an expression of their faith, their collective faith. Jesus breaks into the silence and says with tenderness and love, My child, your sins are forgiven. What? Your sins are forgiven? I mean, in in this particular instance, this seems almost inappropriate and and irrelevant. This man's need wasn't forgiveness. His need was obvious. He was in need of physical healing. The man was paralyzed and his friends just dug a hole through the roof of the house so that he could be healed. And Jesus forgives his sins. Well, this gets the attention of the religious leaders who had also gathered, not because they were terribly interested in what Jesus had to say, but because of what everyone else had to say. And, and, and they had their suspicions about Jesus. And so they came actually to investigate. They were eager to find something wrong. And this is the first scene in, the light of, in, in Mark's record where Jesus is starting to face some opposition. And the next few uh, weeks, we're going to see how these religious leaders oppose Jesus time and time again. What's interesting, though, is that they didn't say anything out loud. And the scripture says, but they were thinking to themselves, what is he saying? Your sins are forgiven. This is, this is blasphemy. Only, only God can forgive sins. And it was just like these Pharisees to have a critical and judgmental spirit. You see, Jesus had already been identified as the Son of God by God himself at his baptism. But, but now in this act of forgiveness, he self-identifies that he is God and he alone has divine power and authority to forgive sins. And furthermore, who but God would know what someone is thinking? And so in verse 8, if you're following along and you're in the text there, Mark records that it says very, very matter-of-factly, Jesus knew immediately what they were thinking. So you follow me? They didn't say anything, but they were thinking this is blasphemy. And so then Jesus asks them, why do you question this in your hearts? Is it easier to say to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, or stand up, pick up your mat, and walk? Jesus Masterful, isn't he? Beautiful. Because as soon as he asks them about what they are questioning, they would immediately know, he knows exactly what I'm thinking. I didn't say anything, but I was thinking it. How did he know? But now that Jesus has put the question to them, they have to decide what is easier to say. Your sins are forgiven... Or, stand up, pick up your mat, and walk. That's a rhetorical question. Didn't really expect an answer because in, in one way, it's, 
Both are fairly easy to say. I just said it. Anyone can say, your sins are forgiven. But to say your sins are forgiven is actually easier because who would actually know if the sins were actually forgiven? Right? Anyone could just pronounce your sins are forgiven and you're like, well, I guess so. But how would you know? So to prove that Jesus has the authority to forgive sins, he then turns to the paralyzed man and says, stand up, pick up your mat, and go home. You see, that would be far more difficult to say. Because once he said it, if the man didn't stand up or couldn't stand up, then Jesus would have been proved to be a fraud. And so now, the eyes shift from Jesus and they're all on the paralyzed man. Will he or won't he? Well, the New Living Translation that was read for us says that he didn't just stand up. He jumped up. Right? You can picture this now. He just jumps up. He collects his mat. It's like, well, won't be needing this anymore, but here, let me get that out of here for you. I'm sorry about the roof. And he walks out in his own power and strength. And the response is obvious. At first, I'm sure it was just stunned silence because they are absolutely blown away by what they have just witnessed with their own eyes. Then they break out in spontaneous praise to God and say to one another, we've never seen anything like this before. What an amazing event, isn't it? Powerful, it's dramatic, it's life-changing. So what do we take away from it today? Let me just make four comments this morning to give you something to consider. One, It's important for us to begin with believing that God still heals today. This wasn't just an event in Jesus' day and age. This still happens today. Now, it can be a difficult and controversial thing to say sometimes because some people believe that, that some of these signs and wonders have stopped. But it's also difficult because volumes have been written on this subject and and there's nuances to it and we could sit here and go through chapter and verse and we just don't have time to do that. I'm just going to make some brief comments about it. But we do absolutely believe that God still heals today. We, as a church, if you recall, publicly prayed for Bob's healing. This morning he testified that he is no longer on dialysis. Friends, that's a miracle. Doctors will tell you, the nurse told them, this does not happen very often. And so we pray for healing, physical healing. But we pray as Jesus did. And this is the important thing. Jesus prayed, not my will, but your will be done. And so when we pray for healing, we don't demand healing. We pray believing that God is able to heal and that we can ask God clearly and directly to heal, but ultimately that healing will come according to His will for His purposes and in His timing. 
His will, His purposes, and in His timing. See, I believe the Scriptures teach, and my own experience supports this, that sometimes God heals, and other times He doesn't. At least not in the way that we would ask or even expect Him to to heal. And the question then is, well, then why does God sometimes heal and other times He doesn't? I don't know. I can't answer that. Like Bob says, he believes in the sovereignty of God. And there is, a, there is a, an understanding that God uses suffering in our lives for our good. So it's not always about getting rid of the suffering. Sometimes it's a recognition that God is doing something in our lives because of that. You see, Judaism taught that sickness was caused by sin. And Jesus knew this, and so first, the first thing he did then was forgive the sin, because when he then heals the man physically, and he gets up and walks out in full view of them all, he just proved that Jesus has the authority to both heal and to forgive. In other words, he proved that he was God. It wasn't blasphemy as the religious leaders thought. Because he was God. And he had already been healing people, and so on this occasion, he chose to heal again. And so when we believe that God still heals today, practically that means that we ought to pray for one another. When you're in conversation with somebody and they're going into to a big appointment or there's something happening in their lives, they tell you about a, a concern that they have, a health thing or whatever, have the courage to just pray a believing prayer. Put your hand on their shoulder and say, God, we don't know all of what's going on in Norm's body or whatever, but we're gonna, I'm going to believe that you are able to heal in your will for your purposes and in your timing. As elders, we pray for you. Gladly pray for you. When we studied James, Pastor Ken preached on James chapter 5, verse 14. Is anyone among you sick? Here's the instruction. Is anyone among you sick? Let them call the elders of the church to pray over them and anoint them with oil in the name of the Lord. And we do that. We get asked to do that. And so we gather the elder team together and we anoint people with oil and we pray over them. Can I say that we've always seen instantaneous, miraculous healings? No. But we believe that he is able, and sometimes he will, instantly. But sometimes it's over time. Sometimes it's even through medical intervention. But friends, let me be honest with you. In pastoral ministry, you know what I've seen most often happen? Is we do all the medical stuff first. And then, when that doesn't work... Now we're really desperate and we're going to go to Jesus. Just flip that around. Trust that God will heal when we go to him first, that he can use medical intervention. All of the advances in technology, you know, God is sovereign. He knows what's going on in our world and he knows the technologies are out there that existed that, that didn't exist 50 or 60 years ago. I don't know if you, uh, this is, I don't know if I need to share this, but I just thought, Bob shared this morning, it's been 59 years that he's been an insulin-dependent insulin diabetic. It's been 11 years for me. You may not know that. But I live with that reality every single day. And 
I've had people pray over me for my healing. And God has chosen to this point not to, not to provide that healing. That doesn't change the fact that I believe that God is good and that there's a purpose behind it. But I do realize that each of us are stuck in this broken, fallen world that's not the way that God ever intended it. And so we can believe that God heals. Secondly, I want to say this. There's something vital about learning about bringing our friends to Jesus. Um, we, we could spend a lot of time on this this morning, and I won't, but it, it's just the realization that like these four friends of the paralyzed man, I wonder, I wonder, can we be as desperate to bring our friends to Jesus? And I'm thinking about two particular situations. That one is that we have a friend in need of healing. And so we take the initiative to pray because we believe that God still heals today. And when we're praying for that person, we're essentially bringing that person to Jesus. Through prayer, we can often step into a situation where our friend can't. And we can bring them before Jesus and, and in a sense, lay our friends at the feet of Jesus. And secondly, we have a friend maybe who needs to meet Jesus and to receive that forgiveness. And so we bring our friends to Jesus, both those that need healing and those that need forgiveness, because they need to hear the message of Jesus to repent and believe in the, in the invitation that he extends to all of us to come and follow me. And that's why this third comment I think is so important, is that we do need to recognize our greatest need. What really is the greatest need? You see, when we look at the paralyzed man, and it's easy for us to conclude that his greatest need was to be physically healed. That's what his friends thought. Because if he's healed physically, well, then he could take care of himself. He can contribute to society. He's not going to be a burden to anyone else. I mean, what wouldn't be better than that? But the first thing Jesus said was, My child, your sins are forgiven. Why? Because Jesus was putting his need on that man's greatest need. He's putting his finger on that man's greatest need. His greatest need was not to be able to walk again, but rather to have his sins forgiven. And it's not that Jesus doesn't, didn't care about the man's health or about our health for that matter or about our marriages or about our life or anything else. But ultimately, Jesus didn't come to make our life better. He came to restore us to God, and so that we could be reconciled to God. Friends, that is our greatest need. And that's why Jesus continually preached a message of repentance and belief. Because Jesus did ultimate, ultimately did not come to heal people. He came to save people from their sins. And that's why, friends, this morning, we do need to remember the greatest miracle. Because if that is the greatest need, then this is the greatest miracle. Because when the religious leaders question in their own hearts and minds, who can forgive sins but God alone, in a sense, they were theologically correct. Because the answer, in fact, is no one. 
But their assumption was wrong because they assumed that Jesus was simply a man and not God. And now we know how this all turned out, right? Because the man is both forgiven and healed, and God is rightfully praised. But the point Jesus was making was, although it is easier to say your sins are forgiven, it is much more difficult to do. Because in order to forgive sins, in order to, as it were, put away the sin, Jesus had to pay the penalty our sins deserved. In dying on the cross for our sins, the price was paid in such a way that once forgiven, our sins could not be held against us. Also, in forgiveness, the guilt caused by our sin is removed and replaced with the righteousness from God. Because we are so forgiven that in God's eyes, it's as if we had never sinned. Friends, that is the miracle. There's nothing easy about saying your sins are forgiven because in order to be able to say that, Jesus had to die an excruciating death. He bore the punishment for our sins so that we could enjoy the forgiveness that we didn't deserve. Friends, it's so easy to fix our attention on the physical healing of this paralyzed man. Just as we tend to focus on the miraculous healings today. But I'm telling you, the real miracle is the miracle of forgiveness. I mean, can you imagine the man being healed physically and going home with his sins not forgiven? Facing a Christless eternity? Separated from God? But instead, can you imagine him coming home to his wife and children? Looking out the window, he says, hey, mom, dad's coming home. Oh, are his four friends with him again? No, um, he's walking. What? Yeah, and he's carrying that mat. You know, the one that always carried him? Comes in the door, honey. What What happened? met Jesus and he healed me. And she's like, oh honey, this is amazing. Like our whole life is going to be changed. He says, I know, I know, but listen honey, today I received something that is far better than my ability to walk again. My sins are forgiven. I've been set free. And from now on, I will demonstrate my gratitude to God by continually loving and trusting and knowing and walking with Jesus the rest of my life. Friends, have you ever seen anything like this? You have. You have if you've put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because you've received this miracle of forgiveness. And friends, if you haven't received Jesus, if you do not know today that your sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven, then don't let this day go by without going, will somebody pray for me? I need to know Jesus. I need to come into relationship with Jesus. So friends, I invite you to receive this miracle today. And if you have received this miracle, 
then let's remember this miracle today as we gather around this table and realize that it is because of God's grace, this undeserved and unearned grace that God poured out to us, that he's offered us the forgiveness of sins. And he says to each of us who have put our faith in Jesus, my child, I love you. Your sins are forgiven. You're loved. You're accepted. You're chosen. And when I think that God, his son not sparing, sent him to die, I scarce can take it in. That on the cross, my burden gladly bearing, he bled and died to take away my sin. Friends, that'll cause your heart to sing, won't it? The joy that comes from knowing that your sins are forgiven. And this table is an invitation to remember that and to say thanks and to commit our lives to walking and trusting and following and walking with Jesus. Let's pray. Father, When we just say thanks, it seems so inadequate. But Lord, I have a sense that you want us to say thanks and then to commit ourselves to walking out our days before you. As we heard Bob testify this morning, he declared his thanks to you and then committed really in front of all of us to say that whatever days that I still have before me, I will continue to serve you. Father, that's the right response for all of us this morning to this message if we know your son Jesus. Father, oh, my heart hurts for those that don't know the truth of that who have not received this free gift of salvation. I pray, Father, that you would stir in their hearts as we remember together today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.